Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to episode 54 of Inside AgriTurf. Now today I'm hosting the second of our AgriTurf talk, which uh, features a panel from across the industry to discuss the issues of the day. Uh, this episode reflects the complete supply chain from manufacturer to dealer onto end user. So let me introduce my guests. Sean Groom is General Manager of Merlot UK, the UK subsidiary of the Italian Agricultural and Construction Machinery Manufacturer. Sean is also the current President of the Manufacturer's Representative Body, the Agricultural Engineers Association, the AEA, which earlier this year took BAGMA, the British Agricultural and Guard Machinery Association, the dealer's representative body, under its wing. So welcome, Sean. Uh, how are you enjoying your year in office? And any early indications on how the integration of BAGMA into the AEA is settling down? Yeah, I mean, I think firstly, I've got to say I, I've been able to have a year in office, if you call it that, with restrictions easing. Certainly, Les Marlin, my, my predecessor, really had a, a tough run of it being being in the midst of lockdown. But um, yeah, I think it's it's great to be back out there in person. And, you know, the coming together, the AEA and BAG, BAGMA has, has been, in, certainly in my eyes, a great success. It was, I think, the people I talked to in the industry seem to be a natural kind of pairing. Uh, and the two organisations, you know, kind of go hand in glove, as I, I see it, really. Oh, excellent. Right, my next guest uh, is uh, Angus Lindsay, who is Group Head of Asset and Fleet Management at ID Verde UK, one of the leading providers of grounds, maintenance and landscape creation projects in the UK and in Europe. Uh, it has contracts in the private and public sectors. Um, ID Verde employs 4,000, uh, what it calls colleagues, uh, and operates out of 140 branches in the UK. I, Angus, I read that you were actually formed in 1919 as the English Forestry Association. So how many how many assets do you actually control? Yeah, formed in 1919. Yeah, keeping it green since 1919 was a strap line in 2019. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, we have a, had a rapid growth over the last few years. So currently the asset base is around 17,000 items from chainsaws to excavators um and 2000 vehicles from small vans to 38 ton trucks and road sweepers and that takes some keeping track of i guess <sighs> just a bit yeah <laughs> uh, lastly i'm delighted to be joined by jason nettle who is director of winchester guard machinery a, a leading turf care and forestry dealer with four branches uh, spread across hampshire and surrey now, before joining the family company, Jason worked in the recruitment industry and also for a mobile phone company. Uh, so, Jason, uh, welcome. And uh, you're in the recruitment industry. Does does that help you in your business, picking the right people? I would like to think so, yes. Um, we've got a, a great team and, and a great team around us. Recruiting people is always difficult. Recruiting the right person is always difficult. But um you know, reading CVs is one thing, but understanding people is another. So um, I'd like to think, yes, it's given me a, a certain understanding of uh, getting the right sort of candidate in and amongst the teams. Sure, good. Well, look, let's crack on. There are a number of important issues facing the industry at the moment. And I think probably top of the tree for, for many dealers and manufacturers and indeed customers 
Is the issue of supply? I mean, there are obviously reports of supply issues virtually through every industry. So how challenging has it been for you all to plan your stock or purchases for next year? Uh, Sean, as a manufacturer, uh, how easy is that? has it been to write the order book for for 2022 it's, it's a it's a significant challenge not that i've certainly seen in my time in industry in sort of 25 30 years i've not seen this come up before we're we're pretty much in unprecedented uncharted water so to speak um as a manufacturer of course we're wholly dependent upon component supply i mean at merlot we're in a little bit of a privileged position in that we produce in excess of 90 percent of our own components in-house so but of course, we are still dependent upon the raw material, the steel, uh, you know, that th- they are they are constraining what we can do as a manufacturer. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, back in the height of COVID, I, I had visions that we were going to have some kind of COVID hangover. And I do see this period now as the hangover, so we call it that. It's having a real impact globally on the supply chain. Uh, and is it this annoying issue of having machines built and just waiting for possibly one or two items to complete the manufacture? Yeah, it, it's clearly having a significant impact on, on cash flow at manufacturers because when you can't deliver, you can't invoice. We've got customers, dealers looking for those machines, desperately needing them into the market. So, and it is truly a global situation. You know, we're not alone as a manufacturer. We. We have fortunately been able to keep our factories running throughout. There have been times when we've slowed production, but we've not been in the position that we've needed to stop. Um, you know, I, I know there are other manufacturers that have had to stop because literally they're, they're maybe dependent on more components than we are. But it it truly, I think that the, the breadth and the depth of this situation is is unparalleled. I've, I've certainly never seen this before. Sure, we've all seen issues with tyres in the past, for example. You know, the tyre tire situation is, has been challenging in previous years, but to to be faced with everything from microchips to seats to raw materials to back to tyres again, it, it's, it's pretty unparalleled. And, and there's this feeling and experience obviously shared by many of your fellow members of the AEA, I guess. Yeah, certainly. And, and again, I think, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's one of the largest global tractor manufacturers through to maybe a British manufacturer of cultivation or, or ground scale equipment here in the UK. We're, we're all affected, no matter scale and size of the business you you might argue actually that some of the smaller businesses are able to be more agile more responsive they don't have such convoluted and long supply chains and you know i have to admire some of our our, our, our industry compatriots in those british businesses that have managed to adapt and and fair play to them keep operating and delivering product um, albeit delayed but probably in a shorter time frame than some of the some of the major players in the industry can so if we if we could move down the supply chain from the manufacturer to the dealer, uh, Jason, how are you finding things at the moment in trying to look at 2022? And uh, what's your current stock position? Is it as you would hope or uh, is it getting a bit flaky? It's, it's unbelievably difficult. It's, it's like predicting uh, the future. Um, you are placing orders, but there's no guaranteed timescale. There's no end date. It, it put it this way, if everything turned in, I think actually, and I, I'm not talking just for ourselves, for any dealership out there, if all the stock turned in, I think actually we wouldn't be able to fit it in our warehouses. No. It, you know, we are, you're, you're edging your bets a little bit. On could, the, could, could this be one of the 
problems for maybe manufacturers that dealers are tending to overorder from their uh, yeah. particular requirements. And so uh, what you are ordering, uh, and if they total it all up, it may not be at the real number that's required. And, and is there any rationing or quotas going on? I think there'll, there'll be an element of dealers doing that. Absolutely. I think we could use the figures from the AEA to help. Every single manufacturer I've spoken to is oversold on winter stock on their order book. Um, and actually, they can't supply, from what I'm hearing, what we've been told, next year's figures. So they're already now getting to a stage where they're limiting um, stock per dealers. They can't give us end times. I get that because, again, they're, you know, it's just a catalogue of errors um, and problems. And it's it's starting right at the, the person, you know, for example, putting the wiring looms all together to come into the factories to then go... It, it, just it's crazy we've never been in it like it before um i think it brings some fun challenges um it's the only way i can look at it otherwise i'm pulling my hair out you are just trying to work with you know i'm, I'm sure angus has got teams working with him giving him the foresight in the future that you know what's coming and what might be coming and what's available and when it's available we can only do that as dealers um it does uh stress the relationships a little bit um between the customer um and and and, and the dealerships uh, themselves because they're fine they, you know no one has ever been like it you know no with regards to supply and demand we've um we've had it so easy over the last couple of years and then suddenly we've had this thrown upon us um and i think it's here to stay for another two years i i, I can't see it changing much if i'm honest um angus you're kind of at the end of the supply chain as, as the Lucky customer. Me. <laughs> so Sean's problems and Jason's problems are obviously your problems as as, as well. How, how And you would have presumably a planned replacement cycle for the machines that you've got on your thing. Um, how are you, how are you able to plan for next year? <laughs> That's a very good question. And the crystal ball's not, <laughs> <laughs> my crystal ball's not working that well. Um, our problems are, are twofold, actually, um, machinery being one and vehicles being another, uh, because, as I'm sure everybody's aware, the, the, um, the automotive industry has been hit very, very badly. Um, so vehicles that I ordered in 2020, 2020, September, October 2020, only started arriving in the UK in May. So we were six months six months behind in terms of delivery. Um, I ordered next year's requirements, some 350 vehicles. Um, I ordered them in October, about four days before the factories closed the doors to ordering. Um, and I'm not likely to see them until second quarter next year. On top of that, we have, as you said, uh, the normal replacement program. So we're having to drag lease vehicles through extended leases, extend the life of, of owned vehicles, the second-hand value of vehicles is astronomical at the moment. So ones that we are getting rid of are making a lot more money than they would normally, but I'm trying not to get rid of vehicles because I can't replace them. The other big issue for us is that we're still winning business. Um, so you win a contract, and great, you've won it, but how are you going to kit it out? If you haven't got equipment, you, you're going to struggle to get it started. So um, I did start the the process of, of flagging it up with suppliers and dealers um, way back in August to try and give them as much 
foresight as to what we thought we were going to to need and that just links in with what jason was saying that you know people dealers are over ordering just in the hope that people like ourselves take that equipment um but it doesn't matter what you think you're going to need you've either never got enough or you've ordered far too much of the wrong thing and it is it's a big worry going into next year because we have a couple of very large contracts where we've got to start on the 1st of april and at this moment in time i don't know if i'm going to have anything from a from a strimmer to a three and a half ton truck um, how much sorry how much um fluidity of, of of machines do you have presumably you can in some way uh, ship machines around to where they're needed but that's must be quite a complex operation we we haven't got that much flu, fluidity because um our all our sites all our contracts are their own profit center so they have the the vehicles and the equipment for doing that job we don't have a, a warehouse full of spare vehicles and machines that we move about they are specific for the um the jobs in hand so the only surplus equipment I get is when I have a contract finishing or shutting down um, and we try and retain retain or, or move the best of that equipment about. But you know, after five, seven years on a contract, the equipment's pretty much at the end of its life. But this year I'm having to look at it and say, well, do we invest in refurbishing a seven-year-old tractor just because we can't get a new one? Um, so it is a, it's a bit of a juggling act. And the last thing I want to be doing is, is putting old machinery into a new contract because it gives no confidence to the client whatsoever. So, do you uh, do you share uh, Jason's fear that it's probably going to be another couple of years before, at least before it all settles down? I think that, I think the next twelve months are going to be the most difficult our industry has ever ever suffered. Um, this year has been challenging, but next year I think it's going to be even more challenging. I'd like to think that the middle of twenty twenty three we might be sort of coming out of the coming out of the murk um but i don't see it getting any better for the next 12 months definitely not yeah well thank you uh, and sean just on that topic um it, it's a, i hesitate to use the b word but obviously um brexit you you, you are a subsidiary of um mm. uh, con- country operating in the eu has that added to your is- supply issues at all or not uh, from a Merlot perspective, actually, no. We took the probably, you could say, uh, over the top step of becoming a customs bonded location. So we, we, we achieved customs bonded status, which has meant that we, whether we get preferential treatment at the border, I couldn't, I couldn't comment. But it, certainly from a Merlot perspective, we have had no interruptions due to, to Brexit or in terms of getting product through the border. Um, that said, when we've had to ship back a, 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 a loan test unit back to Italy, that's been a different scenario altogether. I have to say exporting has proved to be extremely difficult, even, even for a company like ourselves. Um, but I think, you know, for me, Brexit was really lost in amongst COVID. You know, we were all very focused on Brexit and then up pops COVID. It distracted us somewhat from the situation and still does to this day, if we're, if we're, if we're honest. But the biggest issue I have is Northern Ireland. You know, Northern Ireland, unfortunately, was thrown under the bus as far as I'm concerned and still is to this day. We, we have a lot of customers in Northern Ireland. We have we have a dealer network in Northern Ireland. Uh, there's big concerns for me over the future regards the CE, UK CA marking situation in Northern Ireland. And, and, you know, if we see some divergence between the CE standard and the UK CA in the future, if we if we do a trade deal with America, for example, and we 
we we decide to drop the UKCA standard to the level of the ANSI standard, then we have a dilemma where we may have UKCA March machines in stock in the UK, but we can't actually ship them into Northern Ireland customers. Um, that that probably is the bigger issue out of Brexit, as I see Northern Ireland. Well, thank you all, all for that. Um, if I could move on from machines to manpower, or rather, no, I can't use that word, can I? Um, person power, shall we say. Um, it's fairly clear and has been for some time that our industry, whether it's the ag industry, ag machinery industry, or turf care industry, it tends to fly under the radar of public and national recognition. What are ways in which we can nail our flag to the mast more visibly, shall we say? And particularly, I guess this uh, is to do with recruitment, how we attract people into the industry, because increasingly we are going to have to take people from outside the industry uh, because we've mined most of the people who are as closely associated either from farming stock or or, or, or whatever um, Jason could I come to you first uh, what are your staffing requirements likely to be extra staffing requirements either mostly I guess with replacements um, and how do you find them and where do they come from word of mouth we don't tend to poach and, and recruit from our competitors, if I'm honest, we're very lucky uh, as a as an organisation. We've got some very long-standing loyal members of staff. But to go out, I, I do use an agency. We work very closely with um, a couple of agencies. They know exactly what we're looking for, and, and and actually, I keep the jobs open even if I haven't necessarily got a position. Um, my view is, if the right person comes along, do you know what? I would take them because people are so difficult to find. What do what do people want? Do they want to be? You know, we're a family-run business, um, so you know anybody who works for us, we know them. I know about their family. I know their situations at home, what they're up to, what they like doing at the weekend. So you know, we are. I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to do that at that on this level. So we don't treat people as a number. Um, they are, you know, they are people. I can't answer it, but I think we're pretty good employees. Um, we've got a good name and a good reputation in the area. But uh, really, it is if the right person comes along, we just snap them up. Uh, you've got a, a very good agricultural land based college very close to you at Sparsholt. Mm-hmm. Do you poke your head above the parapet there? And uh, is that a, a, a potential for you? Yes, it is. They don't, uh, if I'm honest, we don't get that many children and guys coming out of the agricultural college, truth be known. No, that's never really been actually overly successful for us. You would like to think it would be, but we're quite out of the way. So it's not as if you're in a garage in the town or something along those lines. So if they're youngsters, they have to have that their own mode, you know, method of transport, um, which does, I think, causes us problems personally. Um, and I would probably say that if you think about where all the other companies who we you know, I know of, where they are, they're typically out in the sticks. If you haven't got transport, you don't typically have a bus station or bus stops right next door to to your depot. So we are relying on people having their own cars and vehicles. And and there's more and more youngsters to this day who don't seem to drive. Um, Uh, And COVID has caused the problem there. Sure. What was interesting, I attended an event at Sparsholt a couple of years ago and um, on behalf of uh, IAGRI, Institute of Agricultural Engineers. And when you started to talk to some of the students about tractors and machinery, they weren't particularly interested. 
But when you started to talk about the environment to them as as a channel towards, say, agricultural engineering, they got a lot more interested. So I think maybe there is an, an environmental message that this industry can give out uh, possibly much more strongly. Um, but thanks, uh, Jason, for that. Um, Angus, um, finding your you've got 4000 colleagues, as we said, finding new colleagues, uh, replacing colleagues. How how difficult or easy are you finding it at the moment? Massive issue at the moment. Um, so we have 4000 permanent um, colleagues in place, um, but that rises to around 5000 when we take on seasonal uh, workforce. Um, that's becoming more of a difficult um, challenge. Uh, people, whilst we work outside um, and in the good weather, everybody wants to be outside. They're not so keen when it's a bit cold and wet and miserable. Um, and, and we are struggling to get everybody, anybody from you know somebody to push a mower and operate a, a strimmer all the way through to, to managers, senior managers, that sort of thing. We're not a glamorous industry. We don't pay rock star wages. We struggle against people like Amazon, the big warehouses, the um, the, uh, the delivery sector where you've got Morrison's, Sainsbury's, all the rest of them taking drivers for uh, delivering food. Um, it It's a big problem, mm. big, big problem, which is why I'm kind of looking at technology to see if there's some areas that we can use technology to take the, the grunt jobs out of the way, so to speak. I think, which is increasingly going to come anyway. Uh, Sean, what, what's your view? And uh, I don't know how many people you employ, but taking it as an industry overview, what sort of messages are you getting on uh, uh, really the industry becoming more visible? One of the good things, of course, that, that, that AEA is uh, part of LeTech, which is the learning tech, um, is the emergence of, of quite a few high-profile uh, women and girl mm-hmm. technicians, particularly yep. in the industry. And I think that they may, may well become role models, not only for the, the females, but actually for engineering in in general. Yeah, I, I think you, 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 you've you hit the nail on the head there to a point, Chris, and certainly the environmental aspect as well. This is a huge discussion topic every time we meet at the AEA, you know, as, as manufacturers, as suppliers, we are continually all challenged with recruitment. You know, we're we, we probably, you know, whilst it might seem quite glamorous to work for a manufacturer, maybe it's what a lot of people look to to move on to sometimes as they work their way through the industry. The travel element becomes a big challenge for a lot of people now, the time away from home. That's something that a lot of people aren't prepared to commit to now. Uh, and I think yeah, as an industry, as the AEA, one of the things we're trying to understand is what motivates young people to make this their career choice. You know, for me, it was a burning passion. I always wanted to come into this industry. Bizarrely, although growing up with plant hire and farming in my family, I, I went into the car industry. I qualified as a technician in the car industry because at 16, I was mad about racing cars and that was my passion. But I came back to agriculture after that. I think one thing we think we've learned at the AEA is about peer-to-peer communication. And by that, I mean you have to identify the right group of people to communicate your message. Myself, well, all of us on this call, we're all far too old to impress upon those young people that this is a really great career, a great industry to choose. But what I think we have identified is that we need to bring on board the right kind of influencers and, dare I say, social media influencers, because as much as we're all people that have had to get to grips with this technology, you know, for the next generation, for my children, this is second nature. This is where they get their news from. This is what 
does truly influence their decisions. You know, we we've been recruiting here at Merlot recently and, uh, you know, the environment is very much up the list. I mean, we just launched our first generation zero range of equipment, electric machines. Uh, and that ticks a big box. People want to work for a company or young people want to work for a company where the environment is considered. Uh, and, and interestingly, money is not the, the motivating factor with a lot of the younger people. It's it's the environment. It's the conditions they've got. The flexibility in working is is key. And I think what we've gone through with furlough, with COVID, working from home, you know, the, 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 the sort of um, zero hour type uh, contracts out there, the flexibility they offer people, they're not that's not all negative for, for the young generation. They like this mix and match style of working to a point. Yep. And uh, what was interesting, you mentioned automotive industry that uh, the two, but certainly two of the um, young ladies that I've talked to have got technicians jobs with dealers actually mm-hmm. came out of the automotive industry because they found it too boring. Mm-hmm. It was too much of a tick box operation for them. They wanted something a little bit more challenging, but that was probably down to their personal, their nature. Mm-hmm. They, they were outdoory types, liked adventure. And so we, we, we do have quite a lot to offer in that field, don't we? What other industry? I think, I think for me, you know, we're working with everything from, yeah, I'm sure from internal combustion engines, but you know, hydraulics, electronics, fluids, you know, we're, you know, whether it's ground scare equipment, whether it's it's agricultural construction equipment, whatever, you know, that one machine has multiple systems on board. And I think that's what does appeal to people in the automotive industry. And I think one sector we shouldn't overlook is those people coming out of the military. You know, there's a lot of people coming out of the military looking for opportunities. You know, I look at Timpson, the, the, the shoe uh, repairers and key cutters, you know, Tim, James Timpson's headed up a, a real campaign to bring ex-convicts into his business. You know, he's supported them. And I think, you know, we've probably been guilty in the industry of overlooking some areas where we can bring maybe a more mature element into the workforce as well. Yeah, just to give a plug to a previous uh, episode of um, Inside AgriTurf uh, with uh, a group called Forces Farming, and I did an interview with uh, a guy that had come, who was a tank uh, instructor at Bovington Camp and is, is now well ensconced as an agricultural machinery technician and loving it. That's, mm-hmm. that's the main thing. Well, look, thank you for that. And, and, and we've mentioned the environment. If I might just go on to that for a moment, uh, we've just come off the back of COP26 in which we got bombarded uh, from every side on uh, what are the challenges going to be uh, for every industry. And each one of us, I guess, I, I've just uh, finished a um, podcast, which is the one before this, just looking at future energy sources. Are they going to be methane, hydrogen, electric, electrification, battery, and so on? Um, obviously, there's a big change going on. Fossil fuels are not going to uh, disappear overnight, uh, but every manufacturer has to be looking ahead. Um, I guess of, of of all of you, Angus, you will be on the path and the transition to to battery power, probably more so than a lot of people. Yeah, we've um, we're under a lot of pressure from our clients to go green um, uh, or greener. We work in a green industry, so it makes sense. Um, the we've spent a considerable amount of money over the last couple of years um, on electric, be it from the humble brush cutter all the way up to ride-on mowers, vehicles, everything. One of the biggest challenges is that the, the clients seem to think that because they've seen something on television or they've seen a Tesla on the road, then the alternatives are there you know, willy-nilly and you can get an electric tractor, an electric excavator, and they all last a day's work and they can do it for the same money as the diesel one. Um, so that is, that is a big challenge. 
I think there's there's a lot of catching up to do with the supply chain and the manufacturer side of things. Um, but we we are pushing ahead. We became carbon neutral last month, um, but we we've got a big job of work to do um, to to keep that momentum going. And it's it's not just about the machines you use and, and the fuel that you use. It's about the the job that you do. Yeah. Do you need to cut the grass all of the time? Um, do we look at rewilding areas, getting clients on board to consider those those points that the playing fields don't need to be cut all the time or the whole areas need to be cut? They can leave some areas slightly longer. So there's there's a big education job to do. You, you mentioned COP26, and I hope that a lot of our clients have seen it and makes them think about things slightly differently um, because going back to the aging work, workforce thing, that's that's all the way through from client through to supplier, manufacturer and end user. Um, and we need to bring some some new thinking into what we do. And of course, legislation might get in the way. I mean, I expect some of you have read that California has banned the sale of a petrol engine, gas engine, um, outdoor power equipment, lawnmowers, blowers and so on from January 2024. Yes, um, right. And I also read that that involves something like 17 million uh, pieces of a kit. So uh, that is some transition job that's going to have uh, be on the way yeah, there. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think electric is the be all and end all. You, know, no. the, you, you mentioned about the internal combustion engine and it's it's I can't see manufacturers wanting just to throw an internal combustion engine in the skip overnight. No, They'll, they want something different that you can put into it to to continue um it's it's longevity and things like hydrogen like hvo diesel that sort of thing i think are worthy alternatives and in some cases probably the only realistic alternative to some equipment well it's going to be very difficult to um service shall i say an electric tractor in big farming where it's miles from base and so on jason are you seeing a, a definite move obviously we've got robot mowers these days and a lot of electric kit i think probably in the outdoor power equipment market electrification is moving a, a lot quicker than it is say in the ag sector at the moment chris battery is is now well and truly here um, and it's it's here to stay. How long? Um, I've still got my takes on it. I think we're going to run this for at least call it a fifteen year cycle, fifteen year journey. Um, my only gripe with handheld battery or battery at the moment is no one's recycling lithium ion. Pick a battery mower and a battery cell for that mower. Um, and I use the same. Uh, you know, I've explained it to numerous manufacturers. And they've everyone's agreed to me. You know, a domestic lawnmower sold into a domestic environment will give you anywhere up to 20 years. Um, if, it, if it's the right machine and it's a you know a well-made product, it could last 20 years. Um, and 95% of that mower would be recyclable. Uh, battery cells we're typically seeing lasting anywhere between three and five years. Um, and the mowers, once again, they don't have the same strength in them as you know as, as a com- comparison. So yeah, all we're doing at the moment, and I think we're still doing it in cars as well, is not in our backyard. Mm. So, um, yes, battery is here. Yes, we need to think of something. There are things out there. There's uh, the hydrogen cell. They're, they're looking at creating generators for houses, which will then draw, you know, it'll create electricity. The byproduct will be water and, and, and heat. The car can fundamentally become the storage for the house. 
Um, and instead of it just being a one-way draw, it'll be two-way draw backwards and forwards for the house. The house, in theory, would potentially, when you wake up in the morning and turn the kettle on, uh, wouldn't actually use any electricity from the grid. It'll just draw that 20% surplus from the car. Um, it's huge. It's massive. It's yeah. um, it's exciting times, but um, our industry, yes, handheld, I think it will be there. But we've just got to start to recycle these batteries. If one cell goes down, that battery's gone. Yeah. And, and we are, um, there's a lot of lithium iron out there, which probably could be used. <clears throat> Yeah, I read a report, and I think it was the American um, Society, uh, Electrical Society, which said that uh, manufacturers of batteries had they spent so much time and money on research in in increasing the efficiency and runtime of batteries that they hadn't actually spent any time in working out how they were going to be recycled. Uh, th- th- there was a great te- lack of recycling facilities around, and, and actually, as an aside, one of the other problems is that, uh, for instance, one of the biggest lithium mines in the United States is currently being picketed uh, by environmentalists who don't want people to take the lithium out because it's 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 not clean energy it's it's destroying the environment and and so on and the actual mining of it is 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 not particularly in, uh, environmentally friendly i'd love to know the fuel used on a machine a vehicle to, yeah. to draw the lithium ion out to what fuel we're actually saving for the life of that machine mm. and I'd, I think you'd be hard pushed to actually say, yeah, I, I think I know which way I'd put my money on at the moment. But. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, Sean, you say that your company's just um, introduced, I see, a, a, a battery product. This was presumably on the cards for some time. Um, do you see that being extended uh, very much into the rest of your range? Yeah. So, I mean, we've been having the demand principally from the construction market initially with ULEs and ultra-low emission zones across not just London now, but across many cities in clean air zones to produce a machine with zero emissions. Interestingly, the comments about lithium, we've gone lead acid because in a handler, obviously weight's not an issue. Um, you know, 50 years ago, we had electric milk floats with lead acid batteries, fully recyclable at their end of life. And it's very interesting, actually, as we've started to talk to some of the big uh, corporates and government departments about this concept end of life and start of life is more of a concern than probably it was previously. You know, the, the whole life aspect of, of, of the source, of the, of the disposal, the recycling is becoming uh, a very hot topic, so to speak. And yes, to answer that, Chris, we this is one of a, a generation, a new range, a new. Uh, so um, but as, as Angus says, the answer is not solely electric. You know, as a company, we are committed to developing other power sources, other other of options, shall we say, I think, you know, globally, we need to be able to offer a, a choice when it comes to an environmentally friendly way of powering our product. Um, and, and you know, we, you know, with some of the bigger products, some of the, 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 the in the construction sector, the Roto, that is a, when it goes into crane mode, it sits in one spot, we, we will have an option in the future to just simply plug it in, uh, plug it into the mains. And because in crane mode, it's got no, it doesn't need any any motive power for such. It's slewing and winching, and um, we've got the option. So we're we're constantly reviewing that. We've got a team of people in the company that are looking at the green angle, uh, you know, which obviously our colour is green. It's just quite well with our business, and um, as a family-owned business, it's all about sustainability. That's that's very much yeah. That, that's right. Well, look, um, obviously, the environment, uh, I don't think, uh, and it's clear there is no silver bullet in terms of future energy. Uh, all of them are in the mix for future machines, I, I guess. Mm. 
If we move from machines and, and products and, and, and so on, move back to people for a moment. Um, I don't know what you feel, but it seems to me that people are more intolerant these days. They're uh, less forgiving. They're more eager to make a complaint as a keyboard warrior sitting in their, their pajamas at night, bashing out uh, emails uh, to whoever they might uh, have fallen out of love with. Um, how do you all feel? Jason, you're in a consumer business. Do you love your customers and do they love you? Yes, I think they do love us. We we certainly love them. Um, from a point, you know, even even the unhappy ones. Um, look, as I say to any customer, we've potentially upset. We don't go out of our way to try and upset them. You know, um, there are times, particularly in the last two years, where circumstances have been, you know, out of our control. Um, it, it's just you know, or, you know, product has failed. We quite often get blamed for that. You know, we politely remind them that we're not the manufacturers we are their agent we are looking after their warranty um and we're on the customer's side it's understanding the customers and the reason why they've got frustrated and normally there'll be a reason for that and they're up against the tight deadline they're uh, experiencing pressure um from another side from a customer from from loved ones from partners you know you name it um time time is of the essence so it's understanding that we're all human after all, um, and it's it's how we then deal with it afterwards. Um, so this year we have had probably we've never really uh, had loan machines to give out to customers from a domestic point of view. But this year, because of shortage of supply, spare parts, I think we've actually uh, had a tally. I think we've got around about forty-two loan machines of various different types: hedge cutters, lawnmowers, tractors, ride, you know, and. They've all been out um, with customers because their machines are in with us with a fault or a breakdown. If you go out of your way to help, um, I think people would be pretty understanding. But you know, social media is a classic. Everyone does love to jump on and, and shout um, and shout how bad you are. Um, you know, and, and I take it really personally, but then um, it does frustrate me. Yes, it does upset me. I normally come in and ask, What's this one-star review, and what you know? Why has this come about? Um, when you drill down into it, actually, it's invariably little you could do about it as a business. But we've just got to take it on the chin because we're at the front yeah. um, of, of the queue. It does make you tighten up a little bit. Um, we look at our own internal processes as well, and how we deal with people, um, and we try not, you know. We try our best not, to, you know, not for these circumstances. Well, you, you ought to be able to use customer feedback, of whatever nature it is, uh, creatively and, and positively, don't you? I mean, obviously, some of it is is not genuine or or, or, or not 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 warranted, but uh, yeah, um, Angus, where where do your customer uh, comments come from? Do they come from the contractors, the, you know, the your clients, uh, their their customers? Mostly from clients, most members of the public. It's very rare that we get a pat on the back, but it's... Um, <laughs> goes with the territory, I guess. Goes with the territory, yeah. Um, I think social media has got good points and bad points, um, both internally and externally. You know, you can you can have your own staff doing silly things that they don't see as devious, offensive, call it what you like, um, but then they post it and you think, what are you doing? You, you, know, you, you shouldn't be publicising that. Um, and I, I think it's it's almost created a job for somebody just to manage the social social media posts. Um, 
good, bad, and indifferent. You, you mentioned the phrase keyboard warrior, not related to social media so much, but I, I do think that the last 18 months or so, people have, have reverted to, to just driving keyboards now and, and not doing what we're doing now, which is talking or picking up the phone or, or meeting up with people. Now, I appreciate that you couldn't do that for a long period of time, but you can still pick up the phone and have a conversation but i think i think a lot of people have just think that firing an email off is is the be all and end all um and that can get misconstrued um you can't i take the take the view that you you speak to somebody you have a conversation um and you confirm that conversation by email because in speaking to somebody it brings up other points and you can probably get an awful lot done in a a lot more done in a five-minute conversation you can do and and sending emails left right and center yeah i think um i mean we are in in the olden days which are some of us um remember uh, <laughs> you, you used to get a letter uh, on your yeah. desk um in green ink always or normally and in, invariably starting uh, i'm an engineer and then carrying on from there but i guess uh, some of us also if we got something difficult to write often sleep on it overnight and uh, and, and send it in the morning rather than uh, fire it off straight away um sean uh, i i guess you've got a band of happy customers with within your company but uh, uh, presumably some of your customers might uh, take issue do they well, I think, you know, we social media is a great tool, you know, communi communication tool is a, it's a great tool. And a lot of manufacturers, dealers, I think, you know, most people have seen the benefit of, of publicizing what they do in their business. But I think it's equally important to be ready for negative feedback via social media, to have a strategy, how to handle it. Because when it happens, you've got to be on it. You've got to be prompt. You've got to be out of the blocks quick. And I think one thing I've learned, certainly in the last 10, 15 years, whatever it's been now, we've been operating with social media, is that you 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 have to be pretty clear in how you handle that negative uh, feedback, comments, posts on social media, you know, and I think it is having someone that's got that close eye, that focus, you know, we're all guilty of maybe trying to run social media as an add-on to what we do day to day, um, but actually having someone with that close eye on it, monitoring those posts, those comments, managing managing that content is, is is critically important and if i'm honest generally you when you get into it is when you drill into the detail like jason was saying actually it's someone in the pub met someone's brother who heard about a problem with the machine that he thought he'd put it on social media and actually when you get into it there's, it's, it's been solved it's been dealt with and uh, yeah that that is the the negative side of it but i think if handled correctly it, it, it can be turned to a positive and I think Angus's point about um, a phone call, a direct phone call rather than an email in return can be disarming to the person who, who wrote it and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Look, um, I've really enjoyed this 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 session this afternoon and this, this conversation with you all. Um, I don't think we've got many answers to some of the issues. <laughs> but, but, but lastly, um, could I just ask each one of you uh, whether you've got a, a motto or a saying or indeed a a business hero that uh, you follow or that uh, you have hung up behind the loo door that uh, you contemplate when, when you're trying to decide how to run the business. Um, Angus, uh, anything from you? Well, I don't have a hero in terms of it, but I suppose the one thing to remember is that there's, there's no I in team. And I think the last 18 months have very much um, highlighted the fact that 
people working remotely, working from home, working hundreds of miles apart, do very much rely on their their colleagues and their teams to to get things done. And I think that's the from our business um, side of things. If it wasn't for that, I don't think we would have would have survived. Um, and and I think that um, I'm safe to say that that's the same for a lot of um, the suppliers and the manufacturers that supported the, the, the business over the, the pandemic time that you have to work as a team and that team you know that that could be an internal team it could be an external team it, it it's it's communicating and, and getting everybody to think the, th- the same way and appreciate each other's problems there's no point in me getting irate with Jason because he can't supply machines if the problem is is nothing to do with him it's to do with the the manufacturer in in Germany or Spain or France or wherever it is or the haulier um, so I think that you've got to appreciate everybody's problems. Yeah, good. And Jason, if you've got anything that uh, guides you? No, no, no. There's no motto. There's no, you know, there's no sort of um, role model as such. It's just you know, we all aim to lead by example. Um, I do use that you know when I'm talking various difficult examples, problems, or something like that. You know, explain to me we are all human. One thing I've taken from the last two years is. Is talking to our team, um, understanding their concerns, their their worries, um, because you know when lockdown first sprung upon us, you know you could see the fear in their their, their faces, and and they come to you and say, "What are we going to do?" And you know they're looking at you to to guide them through it. Well, this was the first sort of pandemic I've ever <laughs> been involved in, so um, <laughs> I was kind of <laughs> looking over my shoulder saying. Who do I go to? But mm. it's um, it's working together as a team, understanding, you know, some people have good days, some people have bad days. It, it really is. It, it did pull a lot of people together. So I think you know, we can certainly, as a business, take a lot out of um, the last two years um, and a lot of good. Um, yes, we've had to uh, nurture and nurse a few people and customers and we've, we've lost everyone's lost someone or know of someone who they've lost along the way and again it's understanding you know their requirements their needs so it, it, listening is is a, is a major one which i've taken yeah um and uh, like angus i always say to my little staff my phone you know, pick the phone up call me you know um i'd far rather do that than than have a convoluted email messaging or text messaging or whatsapp messaging I'm old-fashioned. Just pick the phone up. Just pick the phone up. And Sean, you're 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 part of a team within your mm-hmm. company, but you're also now part of a team within the AEA family as well. And Bagma, yeah. shall I say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, for you, is there any sort of guiding motto that you use? Well, I suppose my father probably growing up, probably at the time I didn't appreciate it, was kind of a bit of an inspiration in that he left school not being able to read or write. Um, grafted for many years as a heavy plant fitter managed to establish his own business and his thing i remember him very clearly saying to me one day was look you know someone someone made this so someone can fix it i you can fix it i can fix it. there's nothing that can't be fixed and i think that nothing that can't be fixed is applicable to business throughout you know we were talking about complaints about problems before and it it comes back to what we've all just said there it's talking this industry is all about people you know and at the end no matter how big the company how big the deal, ultimately there are two people probably shaking hands, whether metaphorically or, or physically. And I'm a great believer in that, you know, ultimately it's about relationships, it's about dealing with people. And as we've all said there, 
picking the phone up and nothing. You know, there is nothing that can't be fixed by, by doing that. Well, look, can I, I thank you all very much indeed for your participation in, in, in this, not far off Christmas. So first, I'd like to wish you all a very sort of happy Christmas. And uh, when you hang up your stocking, presumably you will want a shed load of machines uh, dropping down the chimney into it. But um, could I thank you all very, very much? It's been most interesting. And, 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 and thank you and a very happy Christmas to you all. So a big thank you to Sean, to Jason and to Angus for a wide-ranging analysis of the issues of the day seen through their eyes. So listen out for another episode of AgriTurf Talks in the New Year featuring yet another stellar lineup of guests. I'm Chris Biddle, thank you for joining me, and this is Inside AgriTurf.